Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 158th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Denise, on today's episode, we have a topic that was suggested to us by Molly Farquhar, and I hope I said her last name right. We had research assistance from Kristen Calderon, and the topic is Witches in America. We have already covered the Salem witch trials before, but there's other witch trials that went on even before that that we only have touched on briefly, and we're going to talk a little bit more about those on this episode. We're also going to get into some of the real witches that possibly were out there, and this includes something that many, many, many of you, too many to actually list, have asked us to do, and that is the Bell Witch. Later in this episode, we're going to be sharing with you an interview with a man that we consider to be the foremost expert on the Bell Witch, and that's Pat Fitzhugh. This is an interview that Denise and I conducted probably about three and a half to four years ago with Pat. But what we did is we pulled it out of our archive, we remastered it and re-recorded ourselves so that it sounds a lot better than it did when we originally broadcast it. And we think you're really going to enjoy listening to what he has to say about that. But before we get into that, we'd love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. Eric Rivenis over at the Most Notorious Podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts out there, invited me to join him to do a little Halloween-themed podcast. And the topic that I decided upon was to go after a top 10 list of the most notorious ghosts, either most notorious characters or a most notorious crime. And it turned out really well. I think you guys will really enjoy it. I will put a link in the show notes to that. We've also put it up on our Twitter and Facebook page. But just had a really great time hanging out with Eric. True crime and hauntings seem to go hand in hand. So it was a really nice mix there. We want to welcome to the Spectacular crew, Luis. Hey, Luis. Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Debbie. Hello, Debbie. Naomi. Hi, Naomi. And Chelsea. Hey, Chelsea. Denise, are you ready to get into talking about witches in America? Yes, I am. All right. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com.
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. The Moment in Oddity was suggested by listener Zoe Zimmerman. During World War II, the United States Navy used blimps to help patrol the coastlines. The main objective was to find submarines. One of these blimps was the L-8 that had been stationed at Treasure Island in San Francisco. It left Treasure Island on the morning of August 16, in 1942 with a crew of two men, Lieutenant Ernest Cody and Ensign Charles Adams. Around 11.30 a.m., people in Daly City, California noticed that the blimp was sagging and descending. The blimp landed on a rooftop and then drifted some more until it became tangled in power lines. It finally smashed into the ground, bending the propellers and smashing the engines, which leaked gasoline onto the street. Police and fire crews rushed to the scene. They found everything in perfect order in the gondola. The lifeboat and parachutes were stowed. A cap still rested on the control panel. The only thing missing was the crew. Searchers were sent out to find the men. They searched everywhere. A couple of fishermen were found who witnessed the blimp descend to an altitude of 300, circle an oil slick, and then rise again without dropping any depth charges. They saw nothing leave the blimp, including humans. The pilots had radioed earlier in the day, am investigating suspicious oil slick, stand by. It was the last message sent by the crew. They were never found and declared dead a year later. The disappearance remains to this day one of history's mysteries, and certainly is odd. This Day in History On this day, October 25th, in 1944, the first Japanese kamikazes were used. Kamikaze attacks were suicide attacks by military pilots. The tactic was simple. Crash an aircraft into an important target. The pilots were, in effect, killing themselves. The first time the Japanese incorporated these kinds of attacks into their strategy was during World War II at the Battle of Layet Gulf. In the Japanese culture, it was honorable to die this way. To be defeated was shameful, and the Japanese had been losing air dominance. On October 25th, Seiki led five A6M Zeros, escorted by leading Japanese ace Hiroyoshi Nishizawa, to an area where several U.S. carriers were located. Fifty-five other kamikaze pilots joined them and began the assault. By the end of the day, seven carriers and 40 other ships had been hit. Five were sunk, 23 were heavily damaged, and 12 moderately damaged. From Curioso Podcast. It's the week of Halloween. So get in the spirit. With History Goes Bump.
Many people are aware of the Salem witch trials in America, and while these trials and these alleged witches get most of the attention, these were not the only people accused of witchcraft. It is generally understood that these people were not really practicing witchcraft, but that does not mean that there were not really witches in America. Witchcraft has long been practiced in America, and Wicca is an accepted religious practice in our modern era. On this episode, we're going to explore other witch hunts and discuss some possible real witches, including the Bell Witch of Tennessee. Join us as we explore witches in America. Blue laws were enacted in the colonies of New England in the 1600s, making witchcraft illegal. These laws stated, quote, If any man or woman be a witch, that is, hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death, end quote. Before Salem, Massachusetts conducted its infamous witch hunt, Hartford, Connecticut had its own witch hunt in 1662. The first woman to be accused of witchcraft in that hunt was Goodwife Ayers. But even before this, in 1647, Alice Young of Windsor, Connecticut was sent to the gallows for allegedly following the customs of witchcraft. She was hanged in Hartford. We don't know specifics of the trial and accusations against Alice, but she was due to inherit a bunch of land from her dead husband, and an epidemic had seized the area, making many people ill. She more than likely was not a witch. In 1650, a servant named Mary Johnson was hanged for witchcraft. She had been accused of stealing, and by the time officials were done torturing her, she had confessed to adultery, murdering a child, and familiarity with the devil. The last charge stuck. John and Joan Carsington were found guilty of familiarity with the devil and executed in 1651. Goodwife Bassett and Goodwife Knapp of Fairfield, Connecticut, were hanged 1651 and 1653, respectively, and Lydia Gilbert of Windsor was hanged in 1654. So as you can see, there was a lot of hanging and witchcraft accusations going on long before we had the witch trials in Salem. I know it's funny because that was going on all over that area, but Salem's the only one that really became notorious for it. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are shocked to find that that Connecticut had a whole lot of it going on long before it ever came to Salem. Well, and even when we were in Massachusetts, which we probably said on the road trip special, we found out that more accused were killed for witchcraft in Boston. But since it was trying to find out if they were witches, and so they actually got drowned and found out they weren't witches, so they weren't technically executed for being witches, but they were killed to prove their innocence. What's interesting about that is this John and Joan Carsington. I believe when I was researching that, they had gone through the whole dunking thing to prove whether they were or were not witches, which generally, usually when you did the dunking, you were dead (laughs) if you weren't a witch. And so somehow they must have survived it because they were executed. So I don't know if somehow they did survive. And so they went, yep, see, they're witches. And then they killed them. Danged if you do, danged if you don't. In 1662, Elizabeth Kelly was an eight-year-old girl who'd been out with her neighbor. The day after she returned home, Elizabeth took ill, and nobody could figure out what had happened to her. Prior to her death, Elizabeth yelled out, Father, Father, help me, help me. Goodwife Ayers is upon me. She chokes me. She kneels on my belly. She will break my bowels. She pinches me. She will make me black and blue. After Elizabeth died, Hartford caught witch hunt fever and neighbors began accusing each other of witchcraft. Ayers managed to flee and was not hanged. Four others would be hanged, Rebecca and Nathaniel Greensmith, Mary Sanford, and Mary Barnes. If anything good came out of this episode, 
It was that the laws were changed so that a person accused of witchcraft had to have at least two accusers rather than just the one that was initially required when these laws were established. When you look at this story, I find it hard to believe that an eight-year-old girl would be shouting such things. Even if she really felt as though the neighbor was doing something to her, which to me seems mysterious, but an eight-year-old, she will break my bowels. What eight-year-old says that? Now, I know this is back during a different time and they had different words, but still. Yeah, it it does seem very dubious as to whether that was an accurate accusation. It sounds like somebody else kind of put those words there. These weren't the only cases of witchcraft accusations being thrown around for political reasons. Occasionally, the shaman or witch doctor of a Native American tribe has been considered a witch. This witch story comes out of Dublin, Ohio. There was a Wendat chief named Shady Arona, who most knew as Leatherlips. He was an elder of his tribe and was accused by the Shawnee chief Tecumseh of practicing witchcraft. Leatherlips' own brother, Roundhead, called for the execution of his brother. The real reason for the accusations were more than likely because Leatherlips wouldn't unite with Tecumseh and turn against the white people. Instead, Leatherlips was befriending them and selling land to them, including William Henry Harrison. He was put to death by the tomahawk. They say he haunts Dublin and curses the annual golf tournament with rain. It is believed that the golf course was built over his death and burial site. There was another Native American population caught up in a witch hunt. These were the witches of Abiquiu. This outbreak occurred in New Mexico between 1756 and 1766. The Genizara land grant of Abiquiu was the crown jewel of Governor Valise Ketchupin's plan to achieve peace between the natives and the early New Mexican colonists. Part of this peace plan was not forcing the Genizaro to convert to Christianity. They retained their religious ceremonies. The religious leader there was Father Juan Jose Toledo, and he didn't like the plan. He claimed that the natives had bewitched the governor. The Franciscan father takes on the role as exorcist, and many leaders of the native population were accused of being possessed. In the end, the governor is able to separate out the leaders and bring calm. At the heart of this craze is much of what happened in the witchcraft hunts of the past. There was fear and a desire to take over the land, and the fact that there was no devil in the native beliefs makes it hard to believe that these people would have made pacts with the devil. That was a witch hunt I had never heard of before. There's a book that's been written on it, so if you want to look into that more, it is available out there to find out more about that. And how convenient to accuse people of coercing with the devil, and then just like it said, you know, just like we said, they didn't even believe in a devil, so how would they make a pact with them? (laughs) Exactly. Just because they had different religious ceremonies, apparently the Franciscan father was not happy about that, and so... I thought it was kind of nice that the governor was going to let them continue to have their free will about what they wanted to practice. The father was not having any of that, so then he started claiming they were all possessed. So, We all understand that none of these people actually practice witchcraft. Many were caught up in a hysteria that was very deadly. Does that mean that there were no witches in America? Of course not. Witchcraft has been practiced throughout the world in many forms for centuries. Let's look at some of the more famous witches in America. The River Witch of Marietta Nellie Knoll was a woman living in Marietta, Pennsylvania in 1928 in a home along Front Street. Everyone referred to her as the River Witch. Nearby was Raymeyer Hollow, named for the man who lived there, Nelson Raymeyer. The property soon came to be known as Hex Hollow. This area was rife with magical practices and superstition. 
Raymeyer was a practitioner of a type of folk magic known as powwow. It was mainly practiced by Pennsylvania Dutch and was thought by some to be a type of witchcraft, even though many practitioners claim to be Christian and the Bible is used in powwow. Whether it is technically witchcraft or not, one of the reasons for doing powwow was to put hexes on people. The river witch managed to convince Ray Meyer's neighbor, John Blymeyer, that a hex had been placed on him by Ray Meyer. She told Blymeyer that the only way to break the hex was to get a lock of the powwow man's hair and steal his hex book. He then had to burn the spell book and bury the ashes with the hair. Blymeyer got the help of two teenagers who he convinced were hexed as well. Things went horribly wrong and the teenagers ended up murdering Ray Meyer. The trial that followed was a sensation and the Philadelphia Record called the trial the weirdest and most curiously fascinating in the history of modern jurisprudence. The River Witch never faced any punishment for her involvement. And by another twist of synchronicity, if you would like to know more about this infamous crime, Eric Rivenus at Most Notorious just produced an episode on the murder of Nelson Raymeyer. And we included the link there. The Bell Witch, it's an entity that tormented a Tennessee pioneer family by the name of Bell. This haunting took place between 1817 and 1821, but many believe that the hauntings related to this witch continue to the present day. The Bell family was headed by John. It was his daughter, Betsy, who was first attacked by the entity that would come to be known as the Bell Witch. She was tormented by being physically attacked, and then the house started experiencing things that could be equated to hauntings. There was knocking on the walls and disembodied voices. The entire family experienced all these unexplained events, but they told no one. It was not long before neighbors started experiencing them as well. Eventually, the witch identified herself as someone named Kate, and she promised to kill John Bell. And eventually, it seemed that she did. To help explain more about this story and to share the hauntings that have resulted in continue, we are joined by one of the foremost experts on the Bell Witch, Pat Fitzhugh. He's written two books on the subject and appeared on numerous paranormal shows. My mother would read me stories when I was very young, you know, to try and put me to sleep. But your typical child stories never put me to sleep. Mm -hmm. But yet she, she could read me a ghost story, you know, something really spooky. And it would just really put me at ease and then get me get me to thinking, you know, not necessarily about something jumping out from under the bed and eating me, but, you know, about, well, I wonder if this is true. What if this were really to happen? The greatest story she ever read to me was that of the Bell Witch. She read it out of a book called The Bell Witch at Adams, written by Gladys Barr, which was kind of a kid's version or a watered-down adult version of the Bell Witch legend. And, you know, all of these things happening to this early pioneer family, you know, the, the knocking on the walls, the disembodied voices, the kids getting slapped by an individual hand and having their covers jerked from them. And, you know, ultimately the death of John Bell, the, the patriarch of the family, you know, all of this huge, com complex story, you know, really intrigued me. But what really made it stick with me was the fact that my mother grew up right there where all that, uh, that legend came from. And she knew descendants of the people involved. And in fact, wow. in our, yeah, and in our family, seven generations back, there was an actually, actually a marriage into that family. So that really intrigued me. Many people think that the Bell Witch is just connected to the state of Tennessee, but this stretches into other states. Is that right? It's not just the Bell Witch at Red River Settlement of Tennessee. You have three legends in one. You have the North Carolina version, 
then later the Tennessee version, and then later the Mississippi version. And you're not talking just 1817 to 1821. You're talking 1817 on up to the present. The Bell Witch had vowed to kill John Bell, and it almost seemed like she did. According to the legend, a vial of dark liquid was found on the cupboard right next to where he had been in a coma for the past several hours and eventually died. And when the family looked at at the liquid, they couldn't identify it. So one of the sons put a drop of the liquid on the cat's tongue. And when that happened, the cat jumped up in the air, flipped over, and was dead by the time it hit the floor. Then, legend says that everyone in the room, Bell's family, who was surrounding, were surrounding his deathbed, heard Kate, as she was called, or the entity, proclaimed that she had given John Bell a big dose of it the night before, and that's what fixed him. And then she proceeded to sing and laugh and you know, just do her normal thing. And that's what the story is. Now, you know, analyzing this as a researcher, I want to look at his symptoms as reported by some earlier accounts, taking into consideration that, you know, those accounts may not be accurate, but it's all I've got to work with. His symptoms, sound, which involved a lot of uh, involuntary facial twitching, um, sometimes feeling as though a stick were inside of his mouth and trying to push his cheeks and jaw bones out uh, when he was trying to eat. You know, all of that sounds like a condition of the central nervous system. But I'm no doctor, but I'm just saying it sounds like a, a nervous system disorder that had not been discovered and given a proper name at that time. So there were a lot of theories on the Bell Witch. Why would this Kate lady want him dead? And did she think that he was a bad man? There, there are many theories as to the origin and purpose of the Bell Witch, uh, some of which are plausible but not provable, and some of which are ridiculous and not provable. You know, there's not to say that that's why Kate thought he was a bad man. There were some other issues, uh, real issues that came up that are actually documented on the public record. Um, John Bell once took a man to court because the man beat up his slave. Uh, In another case, uh, John Bell had a business transaction with another man and charged the man too much interest. And as a result, John Bell faced legal action for that. You know, those are the only two things I, no- I noticed or have been able to find and validate that might make Kate or someone think he was a bad man. Some people think the Bell Witch is a demon, don't they? Demonics have been brought up uh, plenty, uh, especially with regards to the entity's knowledge of religion and ability to argue with preachers. Every time they would throw a scripture at Kate, Kate would come back and throw another scripture back at them that related back to the first scripture. Uh, An incredible knowledge of uh, theological knowledge, I would say. Then in in one case within the legend, this entity formed into several different entities and there was a family hierarchy and that's another thing some people have, have tied in with, with the demon side of things. President Andrew Jackson reputedly had a run-in with the Bell Witch. Is that correct, or is that just legend? Fun little story to tell. It's, it seems that uh, John Bell's oldest son and second oldest son had fought under Jackson in the War of 1812 at the Battles of Horseshoe Bend and at New Orleans. And 
Also, Jackson owned property up there, just off of Ogden Road, very near uh, the Bell Farm. Anyway, what happened there is apparently Jackson got word or had heard about all these disturbances happening up in the northwestern end of Robertson County, and that it involved some men named Bell. And he could have made a connection to these guys who had fought under him. So he went up there to investigate, brought a whole entourage of people, and they got up to the Bell property line, and the horses and wagons came to a complete stop. And Jackson and his men started pushing and yelling and cursing, and nothing would happen. About that time, they heard a voice come from the woods saying, It's okay, General, you can go on now, but you'll hear from me later. About that time, the horses started back up, and they went on to the bell house. Everything seemed fine for most of the night. Uh, in fact, one of the men who was with Jackson became very upset. He, you know, he was looking to see what, you know, what would happen, and he made the remark that the so-called bell witch was afraid to manifest because he himself was a witch doctor, and he would pull out his gun and kill it with his silver bullet. Well, about that time, he got a slap to his face, he turned around, and when he turned around, he got a kick in his posterior region, and legend says he was kicked all the way out of the front door of the Bell home. And then the the entity spoke up and said, well, General, that man is a fraud. He's not a witch doctor, but you have one more fraud in your party, and I'm going to expose him tomorrow night. See, don't tempt the spirits. Well... Jackson's men were all saying, come on, come on, General, please, let's get out of here. We've got to go. Well, Jackson, on the other hand, said, no, boys, if there's another fraud in my party, I want to know who it is. So we're going to stay, and we're going to see what happens tomorrow night. Well, that terrified the men. So they went on outside a little later and out into the front yard where they were camping and uh, apparently were going to go to bed. But then at daybreak the next morning, Jackson and his men were seen heading through Springfield on the way back to the Hermitage in Nashville. And Jackson never came back. Nobody really knows what happened to make Jackson change his mind. And he was later quoted as having said, I would rather fight the entire British army than deal with that damn old bell witch. Have there been any bell witch sightings in our modern times? Oh, Lord, there are bell witch sightings all the time. I get, you know, quite a few emails each day, you know, people talking about it. Uh, typically, it's not not a sighting, but, you know, just a, an experience, a really strange experience there in the area, uh, a bell witch area. And one of the most often, one I hear, hear most often um, is where somebody goes there and they hear something whispering their name and they and when this is going on they feel really cold all over that's the most popular uh, encounter and you know I can't even say it's a bell witch encounter um, except that it did happen in that area and the person feels uh, that it is and also we have a few people that you know have you know take pictures around there and uh, you know get anomalies in the picture uh, typically mist, a strange, you know, strange shaped mist, and a few orbs here and there, but I don't really give a lot of credibility to orbs. But the mists are interesting to look at. So I have to ask, have you ever experienced anything with the Bell Witch yourself? 
<laughs> Everybody asks that, and I I can understand why. I don't know for sure if it was the Bell Witch, but I've had a couple of strange things happen. One time I was there in, in the town of Adams, which is what this Red River community became eventually, and I was doing so actually some genealogy work there in the cemetery, getting some dates off of some graves. And I noticed this rabbit hopping all around the area, you know, all around me, you know, 10, 15 feet away. Well, I'm, I've never been one to turn down a good old pot of rabbit stew. I love rabbit, fried rabbit, rabbit stew or whatever. So, you know, that rabbit, I'm, it wouldn't go away. It was like it was daring me to come after it. So I thought, okay, I'll just chase it then. You know, if I chase it, it'll eventually give out or something, you know. So I chased it a little bit, and it crawled up in a hole underneath this huge gravestone. The gravestone was taller than I am and uh, longer than I am as well. Very weird. It was nothing but just a big old slab of granite, had nothing written on it at all. I decided I was going to make the rabbit come out, so I slapped the side of the gravestone. You know, see if I could send vibrations down that hole and scare it back out where we could play some more. As soon as my hand hit that gravestone, I heard a little baby just squawking up the storm. You know, just just like a doctor spanked a newborn baby or something. And that scared me to death. And I looked around, and yeah, there are houses around there, but I, I couldn't tell where any of the windows had been left open. And there, there had been nobody walking, you know, down the street with a baby stroller or anything. But yeah, when I did that, I heard this crying for about five seconds. So I didn't really think anything about it. And I went ahead and did what did my research and date gathering. And then later on, uh, as I was leaving, I, I got really curious. You know, why do we have a big old slab of granite that probably weighs 50,000 pounds out here in the middle of a cemetery with no writing on it? So I reached up, I pulled myself up all the way to where I could look over the top of it just to see what was on top of it. And the inscription was on the top, pointed up towards the sky. And guess what? The person buried there under this huge stone was an infant baby. Whoa. Yeah. Weird, weird, weird. And another one, I was up there several years ago. I was working on a documentary and I was shooting a little little film up there in the area and after after pretty much wearing myself out and getting ready to go home I noticed a group of about three or four rabbits playing together in this field up there near where all this took place so I thought oh what the heck I've got a little bit you know a little more time on on the on the recorder I'll shoot these so I I sat there and just shot a little bit of a video maybe 30 seconds of the rabbits playing okay I got in the car, I looked, played it back, it looked, you know, looked fine. I played back some of the rest of the video, made sure everything was okay. Well, then after I got home uh, and a couple of days later, I started going through the video and, you know, doing some editing, that sort of thing. And I noticed that the place at the point where I had taped the rabbits, it showed nothing but the field and the rabbits were no longer there. Played it back on my camera in the car, and they were there playing in the field. But yet, when I get home and put that tape in the TV, what do you know? There's nothing but grass, no rabbits. And I thought that was weird as well. Now, the original homestead is no longer there. Yeah, that's correct. It, it is torn down. There's a replica of the original Bell home, which is over uh, near the Bell Witch Cave. Uh, there's actually one structure still there. It was used as a slave quarters and then later as a tenant farmer's residence years after the Bells had moved on, uh, and it has been moved to the city of Adams 
uh, school building there. It's a small log cabin, believed to have been built by John Bell and his sons. Not having the home there hasn't affected the Bell Witch's ability to haunt there then. Yeah, that little cabin is, is something else. Uh, the story is nobody's ever been able to spend the night in there without running out and not even telling people what happened. Uh, but actually, I, I, I broke that. I spent the night in there one night back. I think it was about 2001. Uh, there was me and a couple other people, including uh, Bob Welch, former guitar player for Fleetwood Mac. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, who sadly passed away earlier this year. But uh, it was Bob, myself, his wife, and a couple other people. And we, we all spent the night in there and, um, you know, didn't really experience anything at that time other than all of a sudden a bunch of pigeons shooting up the chimney. And nobody knew that that chimney was full of pigeons except for me. So, you know, I got a kick out of it. All, all of a sudden all this flopping comes from the chimney and everybody sitting in the room just about jumps up, up and flies through the ceiling. <laughs> I would have been out the door. Yeah, yeah. And uh later on there was a year after that there was a Bell Witch festival put on and I was up there in in that house. Several of us were in there spending the night. It's about in 2002. And it was odd we were in there doing uh, I was telling Bell Witch stories, and another person uh, from MTV's Fear Show, if you remember that one, uh, she was doing some, what they call automatic writing, doing a lot of her paranormal investigating. Well, about just before daybreak, this young guy, I don't know who he was, long hair and a beard, he had been curled up in the chair, the rocking chair, the whole time there in the cabin asleep. All of a sudden, right about daybreak, he jumps out of the chair, runs over to the back door of the cabin, leans over and throws up all over the place, all over me, all over the people I was sitting with back there, and then turns back around. Yeah, runs out the front door, jumps in the car, and hightails it out of there. To this day, I don't think anybody knows what happened to the dude. But yeah, that was weird. I don't know if something overtook him or possessed him or exactly what happened. Maybe it was his dinner? There was no dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so maybe he was possessed. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. How can people find you and tell them about your books? Yeah, I'll be glad to. Uh, the books, the ones I have right now, uh, The Bell Witch, The Full Account, uh, that can be bought. Uh, right now it's not in Kindle edition, but it can be bought. Uh, most bookstores carry it. Uh, if one doesn't, they can always order it. also have Ghostly Cries from Dixie, which is a compilation of ghost stories from the American South. And that is available on the Kindle store uh, at Amazon. Or if you're old-fashioned like uh, Diane and myself and you like paperbacks, you can also uh, get a paperback at most bookstores. Uh, if one doesn't have it, they can order it. And I have some other books coming up, a sequel to Ghostly Cries from Dixie and a cu- couple of others that are non-paranormal but but deal basically with Southern culture. Uh, the website I have is www dot bellwitch dot org uh, b-e-l-l-w-i-t-c-h dot o-r-g you can find the information there and also a facebook link well thanks so much for joining us pat it's been a fascinating discussion you take care now okay thank you very much i really enjoyed it and you all take care too the religion of wicca was formally founded in the 1950s in great britain members worship the goddess and nature They promise to do no harm when practicing their magical rites. There are hundreds of thousands of Wiccans in the United States. And don't call male Wiccan practitioners warlocks. This is highly offensive because the term warlock is meant to refer to a person who has been locked out of a coven. 
This is usually done to an individual who has betrayed the coven or used magic for ill gain. So there really are such things as witches, but they are not the witches of lore that have green skin, wear black pointed hats, and fly around on brooms. And I believe we probably have a lot of Wicca practitioners in our audience. I would think so. So those are just a couple. It's really hard to find specific witches in the history of America. I think it was because a lot of it is hidden because it was definitely not accepted. When it comes to witchcraft, there's a lot of things you could throw in there. A lot of the time, voodoo practitioners are considered to be witches or witch doctors. Actual, just naturopathic physicians, that's what we called them. But back in the day, they could have been easily been accused of being witches because of using herbal remedies instead of And there's this, this powwow, which was a magical practice. So anything that would fall under the lines of magical could be considered a type of witchcraft. So there was a lot of different things going on along those lines. And again, we were talking about shaman for the Native American population. And as we know in America today, I mean, I had two students who did their vision quest. So that would have been like, ooh, like completely forbidden, you know, and, and that was just part of their their belief systems of their, their particular tribes. And so it's funny how easily we were to condemn people for different beliefs. Denise, we are continuing to crank out these episodes, warming us all up to Halloween. Our next episode is entitled The Devil's Tramping Grounds. Now, there is a place in North Carolina that's called The Devil's Tramping Ground. We were told about that by Stephen Pappas. And it is the inspiration for the name of that episode. Obviously, we're going to be talking about several locations that all have devil in the name. And they also seem to be tied to weird, supernatural, or unexplained things going on, whether it's curses, hauntings. So we think you're really going to enjoy that. We do have a review to share from iTunes. This is from AW286, five stars, Historical Spooky Bliss. I found this show a few months back while looking for something to satisfy my historical and paranormal needs. I couldn't really find anything that hit the spot until I stumbled upon this lovely podcast. Being a lover of both subjects mentioned, this perfectly combines them into one wonderful concoction. The hosts are terrific, the topics are interesting, and the moments and oddity this day in history segments are great additions as well. My only complaint would be that every episode has me longing for more. Keep up the great work, HGB crew. Well, thank you so much for that. We try to bring you as much as we possibly can. Just love October and pumping this stuff out. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you. 